is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we'll get the latest on the fire situation and also we look at the water watchdog. They've been busy with court cases and enforceable undertakings this year and we find out uh, what are the priorities into the future. As New South Wales independent water regulator, we're in charge of ensuring that water users understand their obligations and that they comply with the law. What that means and what we've seen over the last year is visits on farm, talking to landholders on their properties. We've done over 4,000 visits this year. Most water users in New South Wales, they are doing the right thing or they are trying their very best to comply with water laws. We'll hear more about that shortly from the water watchdog Enra in a moment. Uh, But before we do anything else, let's find out what the situation is with the outlook for fire in New South Wales today. Currently, there's uh, been uh, some warnings. A watch and act fire still within the Pilliga Forest. Uh, and the RFS is advising it will take some time before this fire is contained. Joining us now to get the latest is Greg Allen from the RFS. Good afternoon. Michael, good afternoon. So I guess the situation is still watching act for the Pilliga Forest and obviously watching it closely and trying to contain it. That's right. The fire has burnt around 64,000 hectares, just a bit over. Uh, it is at that watch and act alert level, the Duck Creek Pilliga Forest Fire, uh, with the main area of concern uh, and residents in the areas of Jacks Creek, Bahena Creek, Barnbar, Winella and Wallala to monitor conditions. So be aware that the situation can change very quickly, as was seen overnight in the early hours of, of this morning with that escalation to emergency warning. Uh, but we have now brought it back to watch and act. But just be alert that the fire is still burning uh, in the area and to also be aware that there is quite a bit of smoke being produced from this fire. So importantly, uh, watch your health, follow any uh, medical action plans that you have, but also please don't report a big column of smoke you might see in the distance. It's probably this fire that we're talking about. However, if you do see new ignitions with any flames and firefighters uh, not in attendance, no trucks, please call triple zero straight away. Don't assume that someone else already has. Right, okay, yeah, good point. And the other issue too is uh, the outlook in terms of the heat conditions heatwave conditions that we have seen and later on this afternoon you expecting that might ramp up the fire danger this afternoon yeah usually through the day as the temperatures rise and winds pick up fire escalation can increase uh, and we're still seeing very hot conditions inland across the state now winds at the moment are more north northwesterly moving more towards northwesterly throughout the afternoon so then we'll see that shift in the direction of fire activity more in a easterly or southeasterly direction so again we're talking more about those areas of Banbar, Wanella and Wallala uh, to the east of that fire um, where it's currently burning we are seeing a southerly change uh, come up through the day and over coming days we're likely to see areas of less fire risk with more moderate fire danger across New South Wales okay so you're not expecting those 40 degree temperatures to to last, uh, you know, in the next three or four days, it's going oh, look, to moderate? Yeah, look, tomorrow we are still going to be seeing high fire danger. My right. apologies, tomorrow we still will see that risk. Yep. Uh, but sort of the back end of the week, as we start to see more shower activity and that southerly change, the conditions will hopefully get a little better uh, for those areas where there's fire activity, but definitely still a day of concern for tomorrow. But it's also talking about some thunderstorm activity and that can be some maybe dry lightning as well. That uh, That's on the cards for the next few days too, though. Yeah, that can can happen. What we want to see is rain with lightning, but if there is that dry lightning, uh, the 
sparks can ignite new fires, and that's why it's really important that if you see something on your property or, or somewhere that where there's fire and no trucks, to get onto triple zero straight away. The sooner we can get emergency services responding, the quicker we can limit the spread of fire and any damage from that fire. Okay, but I mean, otherwise you're hoping for rain, and there's also some talk about some damaging hail, even and maybe some, although the damaging wind gusts is probably not what uh, firefighters want to see. No, certainly a, a mix across the state. Once we start seeing those uh, southerlies come up, that can change the direction of fire. Again, so it's important that if there is fire activity near you to monitor the conditions, know what the forecasts are and what your risk is, and really important to have that plan and, and discuss what it is that those in your household or on your property will do if the situation changes or if fire does threaten you. But as we said earlier, hot conditions still uh, expected to continue later on today and getting around that 40 degree mark, so uh, keep an eye on the fire situation this afternoon and stay listening to ABC Local Radio by the sound of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, listen to local radio. Follow the Hazards Near Me app on your phone. It's really important if you haven't already got that to download that. Uh, and with people at this time of the year taking a break and doing some travelling, you can set watch zones for the area that you're travelling through and to so you can be notified of any new fires and be updated on any changes to those fires that might be in the areas around you. Greg Allen, thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate the time. It's 10 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We're talking about uh, fires and firefighting. While volunteer firefighters are the backbone of the firefighting efforts, one fire station is feeling woefully unprepared for this year's bushfire season because of outdated or unsafe firefighting gear. Willigo Bung Fire Brigade Captain Brandon Hawkins spoke with our reporter Shauna Foley about the safety concerns that they have, including no toiletry facilities and a truck held together in some cases with duct tape. So we're out the front of the Willigabung Brigade shed. It's a 23-year-old Calibon tin single bay shed. When the truck's in there, there's barely room to move around it. So you can imagine when we turn the truck on, it just instantly fills with smoke and and diesel particulate, which isn't particularly pleasant. It's uh, got a severe rodent problem at the moment. We've also got snake skins hanging on the walls and all sorts of nasties that tend to crawl in here fairly often. We've been pushing to have this shed replaced for at least six years because it's just out of date and not fit for purpose. But so far we've received only pushback. Plaque on the wall just there that says it was built in 2000, I believe. Um, It was built by volunteers. It was in-kind work. should have all been development approved by the council and the RFS. Obviously, none of that happened. The volunteers managed to build a shed in their own spare time, but the paid employees couldn't do the paperwork. And now we're stuck in this situation where we just can't get assistance on anything. A big part of the brigade here is, um, you know, there's no decontamination stations, there's no functioning toilets. Can you tell me what we're looking at right now? Yeah, so we're a, our primary response is, is motor vehicle accidents. So... The ability to wash yourself off after one of those is pretty important and, and something that we currently lack. We don't have a hand basin or, a, well, we've got a toilet, but it's a, a little tin shed that's sort of half erected next to our fire shed. And when you go over and actually open that up, it's it's like a terracotta pot glued to the cement. There's no toilet seat. The terracotta pot's not tape shaped like a toilet bowl. It's uh, You couldn't, I'm not sure if you could use it even if you wanted to. So we definitely don't expect any of our members to use it. But that obviously, again, makes our community engagement very difficult. It m- makes our decontamination after incidents difficult, which is a, a requirement of our standing operating procedures to decontaminate thoroughly. We've been trying to get a portaloo just for something to be plonked here for a very long time. 
We've now been told that the soonest we can get anything is the end of the financial year. And generally, I could only imagine that'll get drawn out until mid-2025, the way things sort of go, which is a bit of a cop-out when I could drive to Wagga right now and pick up a portaloo from Kennard's Hire and have it back in a few hours. So I'm not sure why our, our paid staff can't manage to go over and do that or can't afford to do that. A quarter, if not a third of our membership are also female, so it's just really not a fair expectation on anyone. When we've got a landholder who wants to donate us land, just kindness and support for a local brigade, but they're going to pass the buck to you know, Traffic New South Wales, and at the end of the day, that's all us, that's all our money as citizens, and to see it so incompetently spent and managed is infuriating. So this community member has offered land and you have relayed that on and it's just been shut down? Yeah, that's right. We've had meetings up there with uh, between myself as a brigade captain, the, the group op- officer for the area and the uh, Riverina Highlands district manager and the landholder. We've had those conversations. So they've started and everything just sort of fell on deaf ears. I spoke to the landholder only a few days ago who said he hadn't heard boo from the service. You know, we were absolutely levelled by one of Australia's worst bushfires and we haven't seen a cent. We haven't seen any support. We've just been left out here on our own and there's a lot of very cranky landholders. And at this point, even the brigade members, the brigade itself is just getting fed up with the kickback. And one of the other biggest assets is the truck. It's how you get to these fires or, you know, situations. This is our um, Isuzu Cat 2 fire truck. It's over 20 years old. It's one of the oldest trucks in the district. It has been a good little truck for us for a long time. As you can see standing here, if you look at the left door, the black trim on it, you can see is melted. And post the 2019 Bushfires Royal Commission, one of the recommendations, it was possibly recommendation 40, was for the entire fleet of RFS vehicles to have their crew protection system upgraded to be fit for purpose. This truck hasn't been done. I think out of the 2,000 trucks they needed to do over the last three years, they've done 400. Our truck's one of the ones that's missed out, and as we've pushed for that locally in our office and further up the line, we've been told that it's just simply cost prohibitive, and that doesn't bode well for a group of volunteers that already have some immense safety issues to then be told that their safety's cost prohibitive. And much like the shed and the toilet and the other issues, we've been getting told for many years that this truck will get replaced soon, so don't worry about it. Yet here we are in 2023, we're three years, more than three years past the bushfires, the black summer bushfires, we're still with an inadequate truck. I've been in the back of this truck when we've had flames go over the top and you would not wish that on anybody. It's a very scary place to be. Um, As I said before, you can stand here and see the melted trim on the side of it. That shouldn't be happening if our crew protection was adequate. We've been told for a long time that this truck will be replaced, but it just seems to be a bit of an effort to string us along and keep us quiet for a bit longer. That's Willigabung Fire Brigade Captain Brandon Hawkins speaking there to our reporter Shauna Foley about feeling unsafe and unprepared this bushfire season. So how have the RFS responded to these concerns? Paul Simakoff Ellums is the area commander for southeastern New South Wales, which takes in Willigabung and agreed the brigade facilities are not fit for purpose and that the station is set for an upgrade. He spoke about the concerns the brigade has. So we've been chatting with Willowong Brigade for uh, a fair few years, uh, and most recently I became involved probably nine months ago. Um, they've got concerns about the safety of their station along Willowong Brigade Road, um, the age of their truck and the lack of amenities at their current station. We've done a, a fair amount to work with them to address 
their issues. Their station currently doesn't have suitable amenities. Uh, the toilet that they utilise is not actually a toilet that is supplied by council. It's sitting on a Telstra site, and Telstra have allowed the brigade members to use it, but they don't maintain it, um, and it is not fit uh, at all. So to rectify that, we've engaged uh, a company to provide uh, a portable toilet solution, um, a more permanent one than just, say, a portaloo, for example. Um, there's a few other brigades in Riverina Highlands, which is the district that Willibagong are part of, that are in the same boat. So the New South Wales government, working with local government, were very kind and uh, provided us about $260,000 to upgrade the amenities at a number of these sites. So that's on schedule at this point to be completed before the end of financial year. So we'll have an appropriate toilet solution for the brigade members there in the near future. Regarding their truck, it's a 24-year-old truck, uh, and, and the issue the brigades raised with us is that it doesn't have the, the latest safety features being pull-down curtains and uh, a halo ring spray to add a, a enhanced cabin protection measure. Uh, I've got to stress that the truck as it is currently meets the Australian standards for safety on fire trucks, but the Royal Commission did identify out of the 1920 seasons that we really should be upgrading all our fire appliances with the latest safety features. So New South Wales Government came to the party and has provided a program that the New South Wales Royal Fire Service is currently working through to upgrade its fleet with these enhanced safety features. We are prioritising that program around trucks that aren't due for replacement in the near future. We roughly aim to have our fire trucks for around 25 years. So where we have a, a vehicle that's, say, 15-year-old, we know that's going to have about 10 years of life yet. So we're prioritising those vehicles over vehicles like Willowbegungs that uh, are at 24 years old because we'll be replacing the Willowbegung truck with a brand-new vehicle um, in about two years. I think it's scheduled for the 25-26 financial year. Uh, if we were able to, um, we would love to upgrade everyone to the latest safety features immediately. But as you can understand, it's a, it's a fairly large engineering feat to fit these um, enhanced safety features to all the vehicles. And it's just not physically possible to snap our fingers and have it done immediately. So we have to look at it from a, a prioritisation program to make sure that we're getting the best bang for buck there. So we're actively working... Uh, on all elements to it, but the toilets, for example, they're currently being manufactured. The truck replacement, yes, that will be a few years away, um, but as I said, the current truck they have does meet all the current Australian safety standards. It's that enhancement that will take a little bit longer. Paul Simakoff Ellums is the area commander for the RFS in southeastern New South Wales. It's 20 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the Water Watchdog's been busy this year with compliance uh, crackdowns in court cases. Grant Barnes is the Chief Regulatory Officer with the Natural Resource Access Regulator. He says they did an independent assessment of the value of water in New South Wales this year and found it was worth $41 billion, a valuable resource that needs to be preserved and protected, he said. Last year, NRA also had to chase up 40 gigalitres of missing water or water accounts that were illegally in overdraft. He says there's also been a reduction in water licences on the coast and also for floodplain harvesting announced by the Minister in uh, the Northern Basin. I asked Grant Barnes about what he saw as the priorities in the last year. I think without a doubt this year has been a continuation of 
five and a half years now of of activity for NRA as New South Wales independent water regulator. We're in charge of ensuring that water users understand their obligations and that they comply with the law. What that means and what we've seen over the last year is visits on farm, talking to landholders on their properties. We've done over 4,000 visits this year. Most water users in New South Wales, they are doing the right thing or they are trying their very best to comply with water laws. And so in these instances, NRA provides the advice and guidance to help the willing. We do it on farm, we do it at field days, we do it at education events, in person, over the phone and and across the internet. Water users like that NRA is available and that is offering advice to those who want to take it. Now, we've seen some changes in the law. We've heard the minister talk about a reduction in the amount of water that can be taken on in the coastal areas. She's foreshadowed the idea of cutting back the allowances for floodplain harvesting in the north as well. So, um, you know, you, you, compliance is, is going to be at the forefront in this coming year as well, by the sound of things. Absolutely. Uh, compliance has been in the forefront for us over those five and a half years, and I see that continuing into the future, particularly with the uh, forecasts of water uh, uncertainty, likelihood of drought increasing across New South Wales. That means it's really important that water users understand how much water they have in their entitlements and that they don't exceed that, because when they do, they take water from other legitimate uses, they deprive communities of water, and they can do serious damage to the environment. We've got the support of the Minister of Water. She's backed us in. She's acknowledged the good work that we do, and she is working hard to ensure that we have the resources and the powers to do our job efficiently and effectively. Uh, enforceable undertakings, and uh, there's been you've been uh, an increase in that. Uh, few, fewer court cases going to going to a, a finality, uh, and but there has been some talk that you know uh, maybe some of the big companies, the mining companies, and I've, I certainly get texts here at the country hour saying uh, that uh, NRA or the authorities are going a bit soft on some of the big companies and should be harder there. This is a watchdog that has teeth and it's not afraid to bite. Enforceable undertakings are used by individuals or companies that have found themselves to have breached board laws in a significant way, and they propose to NRA that they enter into an enforceable undertaking to remedy those breaches as an alternative to court action. But for us to accept one, it must address the seriousness of the offending, it must provide restitution for the harm that's been caused, and it must also be in the public's interest. So, for instance, of the 10 enforceable undertakings we've entered in to date, one, result, one related to a, a Riverina farmer who was in excess of their entitlement. They took 450 that they weren't entitled to take. They self-reported that offending to NRA. As a result, they had their account debited by over $50,000. They contributed $10,000 to Western Landcare for an education program for schools along the Darling Barker River. The other EU that your listeners may recall relates to Illawarra Coal Holding or the mine in Dendrobium. That's a mine that operates within the greater Sydney drinking water catchment. 
And as a result of longbore mining underground, there's been an incidental take of water. We allege the company did so unlawfully for five years, between 2018 and 2023. And as a result of that, the company has entered into an enforceable undertaking to pay $2.8 million for a community-led project to improve the health of local waterways in the Illawarra. That is almost 10 times the amount that the New South Wales Land and Environment Court has imposed through court action. It's an excellent outcome for enforcement, and it's an excellent outcome too for those who want to see those in those environmental areas restored as a result of the harm that the company has caused. Now, I know NRA's been doing a bit of a crackdown on compliance in the southern part of the basin. What have you found there? Is uh, com- you know, compliance o- okay there, or you've found a number of, uh, of issues there? So compliance in New South Wales um, is, is quite consistent. We find issues in the north, the south, the east, and the west in the regulated system, the unregulated system, and surface water and in groundwater across all crop types. In the south, we've focused our proactive campaigns on targeting a number of important problems. The first one was bore extraction limits, where it was evident that some water users were breaching those limits by quite considerable margins. So in the matter of Beltrame, Salvestro and Cummins, we took three prosecutions to the Land Environment Court and received convictions for breaches of those extraction limits. It was an excellent result and one that sends a very clear message of both specific and general deterrence to water users that these obligations are lawful and water users are required to stick with them. If they don't, NRA will detect non-compliance and we will take action where it merits. Another campaign down in the south was investigating the occasions where water users would go into overdraft on their water accounts. Now, that was a, an activity that was quite prevalent some years ago before NRA was established. We saw that as a problem, as going into overdraft is unlawful and it potentially deprives other users of their legitimate water at the time. As a recent result of our Phase 1 campaign, we've seen now the volume of non-compliance go down substantially, such that just 6% of accounts that we investigated were found to be in non-compliance. And of those that were deemed significantly in non-compliance, we've taken action. So, for instance, a Riverina farmer undertook an enforceable undertaking where they contributed $80,000 to the construction of a public park in the Hay Shire area. They also paid for the water that they unlawfully took and they surrendered some of their licenses. We're also doing work in the South on non-urban metering compliance. We've investigated the taking of water in the mining industry. Uh, many, many work's been done down there. And again, where we do look, we find that most water users do the right thing or are wanting to do the right thing. It's just a minority, Michael, who actively seek to break the law for financial gain. I know that there's been an investigation in Murrumbidgee Irrigation and the Mineral Creek issue, and Ra's been looking at that. I mean, there's been uh, some talk about that in the media. Where's that at? Is there any likely to be any action there, or has it been resolved? It's too early to say, Michael. What your listeners can be rest assured is we're taking this investigation very seriously. It's incredibly complex. 
and relates to matters that were allegedly agreed um, many, many years ago, well before ENRA mm. was formed. 2006. Are, that's right. Mm. So we are doing our due diligence, and when we do determine to take that action, we'll be more than able to speak publicly about what that is. Mm, because there's been some environmental and other um, irrigation water, um, productive use of that water uh, issues raised there. Yeah, I acknowledge that there are genuine concerns that some locals have around that area about how water is being accessed, stored and used in that area. And we need to uncover that. And that means undertaking a, a pretty comprehensive investigation to make sure that any breaches that we find are ones that we could substantiate to the criminal standard of beyond all reasonable doubt. The minister actually foreshadowed that she, she, uh, if in extreme cases, she might cancel licences. The minister has the power to suspend and cancel licences for those who are found to be in significant breach of their obligations. Um, that is something that NRA has done on the minister's behalf uh, this year, where we encountered a water user who was significantly in breach of their obligations and the most appropriate course of action was to suspend their licence. It's a significant enforcement action that we have the powers to take and that the Minister equally has the power. That's Grant Barnes, who's the Chief Regulatory Officer with the Natural Resource Access Regulator. A few things uh, on the table at the moment for them. It's coming up to uh, 29 minutes to one. Shortly we'll get to the latest on what's happening with the floods in far north Queensland. Some incredible... Uh, uh, rainfall figures that they've recorded there so we'll go through some of the detail of that shortly and uh, also the sunrise, sunrise results as well are out too we'll have a look at those too but uh, before we do anything else let's find out what's happening with the news adam stories here good afternoon well, also it's queensland's floods that are making queensland the news, floods so are making the news I'll, yeah before that's you right. go into yeah. the detail i'll give yeah. you a bit of detail okay here. that'd be good uh, <laughs> they and are... they're measuring it in meters yes yes uh, you you've got the rain i haven't got the the detailed rain measurements <laughs> right. here but I'll, I'll leave I've that to you. A bit later so on, yeah. I'll just give you an overall uh, picture here. Yeah. Uh, they are looking at uh, evacuating the entire town of Woodgel Woodgel, uh, and that's where people spent the night trapped on the roof of the local uh, hospital there. Uh, so agencies are working to uh, get people uh, out of there. There are also warnings uh, for already areas that are drenched north of Cairns. Um, the Weather Bureau says communities from Hopevale to Port Douglas could see six hourly totals of up to 300 millimetres today. Cairns itself, the rain is east, but they're saying it's going to uh, come back. Uh, in New South Wales, the roads minister uh, says an increase in police recruits will help eventually bring down the state's roads toll, but... Um, as it stands, we've already had nine deaths since Friday, uh, which has led to a 25% increase in deaths on the state's roads this year compared with last year. Now, the RMA says, and they've said this a couple of months ago, the police have only conducted about half the recommended number of random breath tests because uh, the numbers are so down. And Federal Police are going to launch a high-visibility safety campaign which is going to be targeting bad behaviour at uh, airports. Oh. Usually the bad behaviour occurs on the flight, but it's now occurring oh, uh, right. at, the, uh, at the terminals when people when turn up late for their flight oh, and wonder course. why they didn't yep. hold the flight just for them and <laughs> they get all, get all angry and everything. Yep. Uh, so, uh, as common decency is not, common not decency. so common anymore. <laughs> no, no, and that's why I avoid airports and airplanes <laughs> like the plague, basically. Yep. Yeah. I just think, well, I've been late mm. for a flight and you just cop it. You just cop you it. Cop it's it. your fault. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yep. 
Yeah, you get on the next one, and <laughs> Most you have of the to. Time. Yeah, you, the pay the pay the two dollars, Roger. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's mm. like a flight's not going to leave early on you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <Yeah. laughs> they leave on time or late. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, All right. that's that's. Uh, we'll be listening for again. the. Well, yes. Just we'll in time for me to go away. Yeah, we'll you're soon. off. You're off at the end of the week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah half your yeah. luck. So you had your pre-Christmas Christmas that's break. That's Christmas exactly. Grinch. Don't that's want right. anything to do with that day. That's yeah. right. Yes. Out yeah. to out painting the weatherboard house again. Mm. Still painting that thing. <laughs> it's a, it's painting a, that thing three years ago. I don't want to talk about it. All, All right? right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just finally getting around to the second. That, that's right. That's right. Adam Story will be back. We'll be back at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You on Park at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we've seen we've seen we're seeing forty degrees uh, in the inland, and we're I think uh, we're expecting forty degrees around the Sydney basin as well later on this week. But there is a change on the way. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The change is expected uh, actually tomorrow. Uh, but ahead of that, we may see that uh, wide areas in the west are uh, reaching maximum temperatures around you know, in high 30s to low 40s ranges today. And maybe into tomorrow, but tomorrow uh, the focus of the heat will be shifting to, uh, slightly to the east, uh, where uh, we may see that, uh, the, uh, another return of uh, you know, high, high maximum temperatures in high th- uh, mid to high 30s ahead of uh, cooler southerly changes that will be entering the far southwest uh, of the state this, uh, maybe later this evening and move across the western and southern parts of the state tomorrow before uh, reaching the northeast and stalling uh, in the northeast through the midweek. And so with this, um, well, we may see some elevated fire dangers uh, because of the heat ahead of these the cooler changes. And there is a particularly bad fires around Narabra. Its name is um, Duck Creek. The Duck's Creek fire, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. So, and it's still showing plumes, large plumes from the satellite imagery. So people around that area need, need to be um, watchful of these fire conditions. So I had, uh, on, up uh, at least until the full of changes arrive in the area. And, and also... Tomorrow, with this uh, mobile trough feature, uh, this will be dragging uh, moisture and, as well as uh, co- and while combining with the heat, that will create ideal conditions for thunderstorms in many parts of the state. So, uh, f- for tomorrow, it will be active thunderstorm t- days with widespread showers and storms across the northern and central inland and across the whole eastern um, half of the state. And some thunderstorms will become severe, and so there, it, there will be a risk of damaging winds and heavy rainfalls um, uh, in many parts of, of the state uh, with this system uh, before the risk of uh, risk areas of showers and thunderstorms contract to the uh, eastern parts, especially in the northeast during the midweek period between Wednesday and Thursday. And, and while uh, some of these showers might be potentially transitioning into rain, and with that, we may see some uh, potential localized moderate to heavy falls in some parts of the state in the east, particularly in the east, or, uh, sorry, in particularly in the northeast over the coming days. So is it possible we might see rain and quite a lot of it on the fire in the Pilliga and it'll put the fire out? Uh, hopefully, yes. Uh, I mean, the main focus areas will be more on the eastern side uh, rather than northern inland. But uh, in the northern inland, uh, there will be some, uh, well, uh, 
there will be good chance of seeing uh, rainfall in, in the form of showers or thunderstorms that may deliver localized heavy force. That will certainly help, uh, you know, putting out some of the fires in the area. But uh, let's wait and see. Okay, exactly. Now, what about the possibility of dry lightning then is setting up some more fires? Or is it more likely uh, to be a bit of rainfall with the, with the thunderstorms? Uh, with, with this system, there's uh, actually plenty of moisture associated with this. So, uh, well, rather than dry lightning, uh, we are hopeful uh, that uh, we will be actually see wet, uh, you know, showers. Uh, Some sorry, of the wet, wet stuff. Thunderstorms. Yeah. yeah, wet stuff and wet, <laughs> uh, wet storms and the showers. That's a technical term there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, also, and also with these changes, uh, because of cooler weather conditions, that will also uh, deplete uh, fire dangers in the area as well. So, you know, whether you, you get sh- uh, showers or rain or, you know, cooler changes, I mean, the weather will be on the favourable side. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks for that, Juan. Yeah, my pleasure. It's coming up to uh, 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country. Hour. Getting a few texts coming through about the uh, RFS and uh, the uh, dilapidated state of uh, the uh, shed and the truck. Uh, the that we were reporting on earlier on. Someone says, well, at least they have a shed. Our 20-plus-year-old truck lives in the hay shed. Someone else uh, is uh, objecting to the response from the RFS saying that uh, the $50 million that was raised uh, on social media for the uh, 2019-2025 should at least have given every New South Wales venue uh, venue a new safe truck and or a new shed, says David at Turos. Uh, There was some issue with that uh, that money. I'm just not sure there was a court case about that and where that went, so I'm not sure the situation. Again, Carmel's also texted in on the same thing about Celeste Barber getting that bucket load of money for the uh, fire victims for the RFS. Uh, but uh, the money uh, uh, couldn't go to the community, she says, but uh, could be spent on RFS resources. So we will, f- we will follow that up and see what the situation is uh, there on that as well. So, yeah, quite a few texts on the RFS and dilapidated state of some of the firefighting equipment there. It's uh, coming up to uh, 21 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. What we were talking about in the news, torrential rain has caused the river to break its banks. Roads have been cut, leaving people isolated with dwindling food, water and fuel supplies in far north Queensland with the situation there. Lucy Cooper has this report. The rain has been relentless, and whilst it's called the wet tropics, this event has been unprecedented. Professor Jonathan Knott said it's been record-breaking. The gauged record uh, started in 1915 on the Barron River. Uh, The main gauge is at Myola, which is near Caranda, and this flood uh, is the largest recorded flood that we've ever had in Cairns, and it's larger by a substantial amount. Um, so it's it's a very, very serious flood. The rainfall totals have been phenomenal. 21 gauges already that have received over a metre of rain within the last seven days. And over the last 24 hours, the totals are Cairns, 307 millimetres. And north of Cairns, Black Mountain, 640. Yandel, 701. Beds, 870. Dewan, 829. Daintree, 637, 
Mossman, 621, Port Douglas, 389, and Beesbike, 656 millimetres in the past 24 hours. When Tropical Cyclone Jasper passed through far north Queensland last week, the Category 2 system brought down trees and damaged properties, but left far less of a mark on farms compared to Yazi in 2011 and Larry in 2006. But the subsequent flooding has been devastating. In the Atherton Tablelands, a region west of Cairns known for its incredible produce, from coffee to mangoes, bananas, sugar and avocados, many farmers have sought higher ground. Well, I'm looking at a lake there's lots of lakes around our place, and I'm at my neighbour, the, the Golden Drop Winery, and um, they're higher ground, and um, it's a bit of a family tradition. Every 20, 20 or so years or 25 years, we end up here when this sort of event occurs. So um, just big lakes. There's just a massive amount of water slowly surrounding us. Joe Morrow is a mango farmer and chair of Far North Queensland Growers Association, based at Baibura, just outside of Mariba. A warmer-than-average winter resulted in fewer mangoes this year and now barely any will be making it to supermarket shelves. The unfortunate thing is where I did have some mangoes, um, there's a big percentage of them will be underwater. Uh, And if it breaks bank, probably uh, what KPs I had are probably going to go and and probably some impact on some of my um, palmers and laborers. So I'll probably end up losing... um, I, at the end, I probably would have had a reasonable crop of the late varieties, but I reckon I'll lose at least 70%, and that's just a wild guess at this point in time, but it won't be less than that. Further south of Joe, Nick Tromph, a stud beef cattle farmer, has properties around Tinneru Dam, which spilled late yesterday afternoon. It's extraordinary. At 7 o'clock last Thursday, Tinneru Dam was sitting at 71% full, about 330,000 megalitres, and not rising because the rivers were fairly benign. Today, it's at 107% or 449,000 megalitres. So we've seen a 50% increase in four days, which is unprecedented. Mr Trump has had almost a metre of rain. The rainfall has not just cut off roads, it's destroyed them. I think one of the major things for the region, for agriculture and the region more broadly, is the damage to road infrastructure will be unprecedented. The only B-double road access from the coast to the Atherton Tablelands, the Palmerston Highway, looks like it's been hit by an earthquake. It has had a landslip and been split down the middle and dropped about a metre. So I would imagine that's going to take weeks, if not months, to repair and get it safe. And as we speak, the only road uh, I believe that you can access the Tablelands is uh, from the west. Um, I think that's still open, but all the roads to the coast are closed um, and Cairns itself is isolated and many other communities are isolated. So, um, yeah, the road damage, talking to some of the local mayors yesterday, uh, the water's just coming up through the road surfaces and and uh, it's going to be so extensive and the federal and state governments have already indicated they're going to, have to cough up a lot of money to um, undertake repairs that could take many months, particularly if the wet season continues and we can't get on those roads to repair them. Residents have had to evacuate their homes as rivers broke their banks. In the Aboriginal Shire of Woodrow Woodrow in the Cape York region, the entire community is set to be evacuated. Resident Matt Nichols said it's a dire situation for residents, with many trapped on roofs. It's a disaster at the moment, to be honest. We've got um, the Bloomfield River. So if people don't know where Woodrow Woodrow is, it's north of the Daintree, um, south of Cooktown. Um, and it's a small Aboriginal community, about 400 people. So um, they were well prepared for the cyclone. Um, and the, obviously the eye of Cyclone Jasper crossed Woodrow Woodrow um, on Wednesday night. 
Um, it didn't actually do much damage, but the rainfall has been devastating. And, and last night, the, the Bloomfield River burst its banks and um, a number of houses are underwater. And we've got a lot of residents on roofs right now and um, desperately waiting to be evacuated. In his first four days as the new Premier of Queensland, Stephen Miles has had his new role dominated by this devastating situation. Well, we see a lot of natural disasters. This is just about the worst I can I can remember. I've been talking to Cairns locals on the ground uh, through yesterday and through the night, and they say they've never seen anything like it. And for that, for someone from far north Queensland to say that, that's that's really saying something. There is good news, though. Falls are expected to ease by this afternoon. But then farmers must turn to the mammoth job of cleaning up. For Gina Galati, who has a citrus orchard on the edge of the Barren River in the far north, she's only just beginning to assess damage. Look, ever since this event started, we've received over a 1,000 mil of rain. From just a shed perspective, um, you know, we've got three pallet stackers, all the motors were underground, so they're pretty much all gone. We've got, you know, 450 bin gas room, that compressor is gone for that. Um, yeah, so once, once, once we can get a better assessment, we'll be able to, to fully comprehend what we've lost. A mammoth 12 to 18 months lie ahead for farmers in the far north. But we've lost our livelihood too. For, you know, maybe 6 to 12 months, we don't know what, what um, full effect or what, what damage this has done to the trees um, until everything starts calming down a bit. But this is our livelihood. You know, if you've got a job, well, you go... If you can, you'll go back to work if that shop's open on Monday. But you can't do that here. That's Gina Galati, who's a citrus farmer in far north Queensland, talking about the devastation from that rain and that flooding as well. Uh, She was ending that report from Lucy Cooper. It's 14 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, rice producer Sunrise Group delivered a $30 million profit to shareholders on Friday after its third consecutive bumper crop. Sunrise Group CEO Paul Serra says that the result came from the company's success selling Australian rice into more international markets. We've had a, a really strong start to the year. We've seen really strong expansion in our international markets, you know, predominantly in the Middle East and the US, and that's been driven off the back of really strong good branded positions, route to market strengths, and, and obviously being able to source rice, not just from Australia, but from our international sourcing division based in Singapore, that's delivered that result across the group. Last summer, there were some issues. People weren't able to get all the crops in that they wanted because of widespread flooding in Victoria and New South Wales. How much of an impact did that have? It certainly impacted the crop year 23, um, you know, overall size. But having said that, we still delivered a, a really strong crop from Australia at around 500,000 paddy tonnes. So it would have, you know, had the potential of being higher than that. But uh, but it was certainly still a really strong crop and enabled us to have a good amount of, of Australian rice to sell into those premium markets around the world. Mm. You did deliver a $30 million profit today. How will you be investing that money? Firstly, we'll we'll look to return a, a good return in, in dividends to our to our B class investors, but we'll also look to how we can use this to further expand our international and domestic presence. And so we'll we'll look to to both organic ways to grow that. You know, we also have a well developed pipeline of strategic uh, inorganic opportunities as well. 
And looking forward to this summer, what are things looking like at this stage? Yeah, it's, it's been a it's been an unusual start to the to the crop year. Um, I think there's been you know quite a bit of rain as well as some cold weather around. The crop, though, in in general for for crop year twenty four is looking really positive. As we referenced this morning, we do expect that to be larger than the crop year uh, twenty three, which is a, a fantastic outcome. But obviously, we're very early in the season, and uh, as we all know, um, different climate events can impact. But but as we as we sit today, we're we're looking at a really strong position. That was Sunrise Group CEO Paul Serra. Maramai Rice Grower and Rice Growers Association of Australia President Peter Herman says he and other growers have finished planting their crops for the year and they're looking ahead to a good season. So the rice crops have established, uh, planting's completed. We're ahead of last year in that way where we were planting right up till Christmas and the warmer temperatures uh, mean the crops are really kicking away now. Fantastic. Have people managed to get in all of the crops that they wanted to. I know last year there were issues, people weren't able to plant all of the hectares they were hoping for because it was so wet. How much crop's gone in this year, do you know? Um, we don't know the exact figures, but the um, safe to say uh, all of the crop area that people intended to plant early on, they've, been able, they've had the opportunity to plant. So this year's uh, warm climate overall and um, a little bit of rain here and there has worked out fine for our planting windows. Sunrise this morning said they've set a uh, price of $410 a tonne. How does, what does that mean for growers? Is that, does that give you a lot of options to invest in your crop this season? Is $410 enough? Well, you'd ask you know, some people would say it's never enough. Most people might say that because we're always striving for, for everything we can. But this year, that price, that indication has been enough to, to motivate people to plant a crop of, well, anyone would guess around half a million tonnes. So... Hopefully that's that's everyone gets what they need and it's it's around about that. That's Riverina Rice Grower and Rice Grower Rice Grower Association of Australia President Peter Herman ending their report from Elsie Kennedy. It's uh, coming up to nine minutes to one. The, the Country, Country Hour. Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, from rice to dairy and Norco Cooperative, Australia's oldest and largest dairy cooperative, has today announced its annual Christmas Day bonus for its farmer members. They're set to receive an extra 15 cents a litre for milk that's supplied on Christmas Day. Norco dairy farmers are expected to deliver around 660,000 litres of milk, ensuring consumers can continue to enjoy fresh dairy produce right throughout the festive season. Norco says the Christmas bonus initiative recognised the fact that dairying doesn't stop just because it's Christmas Day with uh, the hard-working farmers of Norco operating 365 days of the year to deliver Australian uh, dairy to consumers. This news follows Norco's Farmgate milk price, which has increased of, uh, an increase of an additional 1.1 cents per litre earlier this year. That's uh, taken the average price to 88 cents per litre. That's reflecting the uh, highest Farmgate milk price on average that uh, Norco dairy farmers have ever received. It's coming up to eight minutes to one.
Hello, I'm Samantha Donovan. Please join me for the world today. Far North Queensland residents isolated. As floodwaters rise, authorities say the rain's so heavy they can't operate rescue aircraft. Also, the trial of pro-democracy campaigner Jimmy Lai gets underway in Hong Kong and Christmas checkout shock as the prices of mangoes, pineapples and Christmas pudding skyrocket. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. But here on the Country Hour, it's uh, coming up to seven minutes to one. It's time to go to markets. First up, it's Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Smaller yarding of 13,650 lambs and just 2,500 sheep for the last sale of the year. Farmers got into the Christmas spirit and store and light lambs are up to $8 dearer. The main run of small crossbred lambs to the paddock, mostly $60 to $88 to average $70. They had strong competition from MK bag lamb buyers who paid from $80 to $102 for 16 to 18 kilo little lambs. But the trade and export lamb buyers went a bit Christmas scroogey and processing lambs were often $5 to $10 off on plain quality. Sheep were also $5 to $10 cheaper. Heavy shorn lambs, 160 to 210, with one pen of exports out to a top of 220. The best heavy trades, 24 to 26 kilos, 150 to 166 dollars. In the sucker run, a few heavy pens, 170 to a top of 218. The general run of trades, 22 to 24 kilos, 130 to 142 dollars. On a carcass basis, the best lambs were tracking at 6.20 to 6.80 cents, but there was plainer lambs, including a lot of woolly trades, at 5.60 to 600 cents a kilo. Most sheep went back under 200 cents at 15 to 50 dollars, with a top of 65 dollars for heavy merino weathers. That's it from Bendigo until January 8 next year. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Let's go to uh, Corowa Sheep and Lambs with the details. Here's Caroline Ronald. Good afternoon. Prices ignited for the last sheep and lamb sale at Corowa for 2023. Just eight, over 8,000 were penned and the quality was very good along with high demand from domestic buyers. New season lambs, light and medium trade, lifted $8, selling from 105 to 140 Heavy trade jumped 5 to 18 148 to $200. Light lambs were for 8 to $18 stronger, 76 to 125 Sean Lambs heavy trade jumped fourteen to twenty eight dollars, one hundred and fifty nine to two hundred dollars. Heavy lambs were two dollars stronger, one hundred and ninety eight to two hundred and seven. A lack of demand across a small mutton run resulted in softer trends with heavy crossbred ewes selling from thirty six to forty nine and heavy merinos up to thirty five dollars. Medium weights sold from twenty five to forty seven. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Let's go to Dubbo Sheep and Lambs now, and with the details, Angus Williams. Numbers fell by 4,000 for a yarding of 9,200 lambs for the last sale of the year. The quality of lambs dropped significantly with only a few good pens of quality heavyweight and trade weights. There were good numbers of white dorks and secondary merinos. Not all buyers were present with some trade and export buyers absent. Trade, weight, trade lambs were up to $40 cheaper with plain quality a large factor. Trade weight new season lambs sold from 90 to 142 per head, while trade weight old lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilos sold from 92 to 160. Heavyweight lambs were 25 to 40 cheaper, once again with quality a factor. Heavyweight old lambs over 24 kilos sold from 160 to 208, while heavyweight new season lambs sold to 180. 
trade-weight merino lambs were $10 cheaper, selling to $1.13 per head. Lambs to the restockers were around firm, selling from $1.65 to $100. Hoglets were $14 cheaper, selling to $102 per head. The balance of the lambs and 5,000 mutton are still to be sold. This is Angus Williams at Dubbo. Let's go to uh, the details of Wagga cattle now. Here's Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Numbers fell for the last sale to 2,000 head. The quality was fair to good with a big run of yearlings. Feeders purchased most with some processes not operating. Around 170 cows were offered. Growing steers were limited and there was a small run of prime grown heifers. The market ease with less competition slipping 20 to 30 cents. The few weaner steers, 296 to 340, heifers, 268 to 278. The medium weight feeder steers, 212 to 292, restocking steers out to 313. Heavy feeders sold to 278. The medium weight feeder heifers, 208 to 236, heavy weights, 180 to 234. The heavy trade cattle, 204 to 240, prime grown steers and bullocks, 190 to 235, and grown heifers, 180 to 212. Heavy cows, 175 to 215. And this has been Graham Richard. And we're reliably informed that there's uh, no Tamworth cattle today. Let's go to Forbes cattle now, Crystal Ridley. The final sale for 2023 saw numbers drop sharply with agents yarding just 482 head. Quality was very mixed. Not all the usual buyers are present competing in a cheaper market. Yearling steers slipped 15 to 20 cents with feeders paying from 220 to 300, while those to processors sold from 225 to 277 for metal and heavyweights. The heifer portion was firm to 5 cents easier, with those to feed ranging from 200 to 269. The better types to processors sold from 198 to 269. Heavy steers and bullocks reached 220 cents, with grown heifers reaching 200. A very limited offering of cows dropped 20 to 30 cents. Heavy two score from 130 to 172. Three and four score from 170 to 180 cents a kilo. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And that's the market information today. As I said, uh, no uh, market information from Tamworth today. No sale today. You're listening to the Country Hour. Now, we were talking earlier about the RFS and that social media uh, situation where Celeste Barber raised millions and millions of dollars uh, for fire victims and uh, we were talking about the court case there. Meg's texted in. She says uh, the information that she has, which we will check up on, is that uh, the RFS actually asked the court if uh, it could pass on the donations to fire victims, and they were told no, it had to be used for RFS equipment, Uh, and uh, apparently Meg says that uh, that uh, money was then uh, provided to some brigades, and uh, so they got... uh, they got uh, their requests in and uh, some brigades uh, got some money, but sounds as though the brigade that we were talking to and a couple of others are uh, also getting uh, uh, some reports from others in, in and around the, the Young and Batlow area as well uh, that uh, didn't get upgrades and would like to see them uh, of their RFS equipment, for particularly for safety reasons. But we'll uh, follow up and get uh, a bit more detail on that. Uh, on that social media money and where it all went. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, heading up to news time and one o'clock.